Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The following episode contains disturbing descriptions of child abuse, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. About a week after a jury found Guy Paul Morin not guilty in the killing of nine-year-old Christine Jessup, he returned to his parents' house in Queensville, Ontario. To Paul, the little village an hour north of Toronto had never looked so gorgeous. Fresh snow piled up around the houses that dotted the small community. It was a sight that Paul wasn't always sure he'd see again. In 1984, Paul was charged with first-degree murder in the stabbing death of his young neighbor, who disappeared after being dropped off by a school bus in front of her home. Her body was found two months later, 56 kilometers away, in a desolate field. And even though Paul had been acquitted, many residents of Queensville still believed that he was guilty. As a result, the Morin family became pariahs in their small town. They received so many threatening phone calls that they took the phone out of their house. Among those who still thought the jury got it wrong were Christine's parents, who were convinced their daughter's killer lived across the fence line in the ramshackle house next door. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we continue looking back at a legal case that rocked the Canadian justice system, leaving a trail of devastation in its wake. This is part two of the case against Guy Paul Morin. When Guy Paul Morin returned home in February 1986, he planned to take some time to complete unfinished renovation projects around his parents' house. But with an appeal looming, Paul was forced to take a job wiring homes for a telephone company. His parents had drained the family's savings during the first trial, and he needed to save some money just in case his legal nightmare continued. Meanwhile, just next door, the Jessups were suffering in other ways. They had spent the trial living two and a half hours away in London, Ontario, near the courthouse. Now back at home in Queensville, Bob and Janet Jessup, along with their son Ken, struggled with the verdict and the loss of Christine. The fact that they now had to live next door to the man who they thought was her murderer made it worse. All three, mother, father and son, underwent counselling in an effort to cope. But neither the Morins or the Jessups would get a chance to settle into their new realities. The justice system wasn't done with Guy Paul Morin just yet. In June 1987, 16 months after the not guilty verdict, the Ontario Court of Appeal set aside the acquittal and ordered a new trial because of legal errors made by the judge. Canada doesn't have double jeopardy, which prevents someone from being tried again if they are acquitted of murder. But retrying someone who has been acquitted of murder is still very rare in this country. So it was shocking news when Paul's retrial was announced. The court ordered that he surrender to police the next day so that he could be held in custody until another bail hearing. When he arrived at a downtown Toronto police station, Paul, who was now 28 years old, looked worn out and near tears as he pressed through a mob of reporters and TV cameras. He refused to speak and kept his eyes down as he was placed in an unmarked police car by detectives Fitzpatrick and Shepard, the two investigators from Durham Police in charge of the investigation. Paul's nightmare had begun again. 
A week later, he was released on $40,000 bail, with conditions that he report to a psychiatrist and police once a week. He was also to stay away from children, but was allowed to continue living in his parents' home in Queensville. Once again, Christine's parents were appalled. It was no accident that Robert and Janet Jessup held a press conference on their front lawn. In the background of every statement is the home of Guy Paul Moran, the next-door neighbor accused of killing their daughter. The pressure of living 50 feet away from Paul was too much for the Jessups to bear. While they waited for the case to move forward, they put their house up for sale so they could move on to a new life. But as they waited for Paul's second trial to begin, the Jessup family's trauma deepened even further. And a warning, what I'm going to share next includes references to child sex abuse. Ken Jessup, Christine's older brother, who was 14 years old when she vanished, opened up about something that had been haunting him. Ken said before the Jessups moved to Queensville, beginning when he was seven years old, he was sexually abused on a regular basis by two brothers who lived next door to his family. One of the boys was three and a half years older than Ken, the other the same age. A year or two later, when Christine was four, the brothers began abusing her as well. Ken said they forced him to join in on the abuse against his sister. It continued on a regular basis until the Jessups moved to Queensville about four years later. Ken said the brothers had visited them in Queensville several times before Christine's death, and the sex abuse continued. Kirk Macon is a retired justice reporter who wrote a groundbreaking book about Guy Paul Moran's legal case. He says Detective Shepard and Fitzpatrick were shocked by the new information, but they didn't think Ken or the boys could be the killers. The police never went very far down the road of seeing him as a suspect, but they, of course, had to consider uh, the possibility that he or the other two boys were. They all had a motive, uh, in theory, to kill Christine. But in any event, uh, it had to be considered, but they, I think, dismissed that idea quite out of hand. And I'm not saying they were wrong to. I mean, personally, I, I, I never believed that Ken uh, killed his sister. Then, in another blow to the Jessup family, on October 30th, 1990, six years after Christine was murdered, her body was exhumed. You'll remember from the last episode that after Christine's body was found on December 31st, 1984, in a field near the town of Sunderland, Ontario, Durham police had issues securing evidence. Months later, the Jessups visited the body site because Ken kept having dreams that his sister's soul wasn't at rest. And much to their horror, the family discovered bones that they believed belonged to Christine. The bones had been turned over to police, but Moran's defense team didn't learn about them until after his first trial. Moran's new lawyer, Jack Pinkowski, requested that Christine's body be exhumed so another autopsy could be performed to determine whether the bones belonged to the little girl. He believed if the bones weren't Christine's, the real killer may have murdered someone else and dumped the bones there while Guy Paul Moran was in jail, and this could prove his innocence. You know, the defense took uh, many, many different routes at this case. Uh, to try and, and win him an acquittal. Uh, and anything that showed up through disclosure that they could pursue, they pursued. 
Uh, so that was one of them. So in order to clear up the question of the bones and whether they were Christine's, the authorities had to exhume her body and have it autopsied a second time. A team of police and forensic anthropologists were present when the coffin was opened. There was a lot of emotion in the room as Christine's Cabbage Patch doll was lifted away from her remains. The team worked for about 10 hours sorting and cataloging the bones. And in the end, they were able to determine that the bones found by Christine's family did in fact belong to the little girl. The theory that a serial killer dumped more bones at the body site while Morin was in jail was put to rest. But this second autopsy did prove that police had missed bones at the body site. And it made other shocking discoveries, including a series of brutal injuries that had not been documented in the first autopsy. The information led to new questions about how the original autopsy and the police investigation could have been handled so poorly and what else was messed up in this investigation. It went to this developing notion that this case was just full of, of holes and mistakes and bad assumptions and covered up information. Five days after her body was exhumed, Christine was reburied in the Queensville Cemetery. Her family stood in the biting cold during the reinterment. Her brother Ken openly wept as he placed pink carnations and baby's breath on the grave. Janet Jessup told the media after the service that she felt better now that Christine was at rest again. During pretrial motions, even more concerns were raised about the investigation into Christine's death. For example, it was revealed that the officer in charge of evidence collection had rewritten his notes and thrown away a cigarette butt found at the crime scene. The defense believed the police officer got rid of the cigarette butt after learning that Guy Paul Morin didn't smoke. This was obviously a major setback for the prosecution's case. And as the pretrial motions continued, there were other problems for the Crown. For one, the judge ruled that testimony from Sergeant Gordon Hobbs, the undercover police officer placed in Morin's cell, would not be allowed at the second trial. At the first trial, Hobbs testified that while he shared a cell with Morin, a friendly chemistry developed between the two over a period of several days. During that time, Morin told Hobbs about the movie The Shining, which he had recently seen. And Hobbs said Morin acted out scenes from the movie, including one where a little boy chants red rum, which is murder spelt backwards. Hobbs told the jury that afterward, they had a cryptic discussion where he asked Paul, how do you deal with tensions in life? And Paul answered, me, I just red rum the innocent. Plus, the undercover officer said that at one point, Paul made repeated stabbing motions to his chest when he asked him how Christine died. When Paul was on the stand, he denied making stabbing motions or the red rum comment. But still, it was troubling testimony for the defense, for sure. So it was good news when they found out that the jury would not hear it at the second trial. That's because since the first trial in 1986, the Supreme Court of Canada had ruled that statements to an undercover officer in a jail setting were not admissible if the officer actively led the conversation. Basically, Canada's highest court ruled that entrapment wasn't allowed. The judge hearing the pretrial motions at the new trial decided the testimony of Sergeant Hobbs was inadmissible because he had repeatedly tried to coax Morin into talking about the case. It was another victory for the defense. 
Something else that the jury wouldn't hear this time around was the psychiatric evidence. Warren's lawyer at the first trial had convinced his client to undergo a psychiatric assessment on the promise it would only be used to keep him out of jail for life if he was found guilty. But Clayton Ruby went against Morin's wishes and revealed to the jury that two doctors hired to assess Morin both concluded that he was a deeply sick schizophrenic capable of committing murder. It left a stain on Morin's reputation that haunted him for years. And his new lawyer, Jack Pinkowski, absolutely would not entertain the idea of putting the allegation in front of the jury again. As pretrial preparations continued, the defense also learned that police had spoken with other possible suspects, but had cleared all of them from having involvement in Christine's murder. Morin's lawyers thought the jury should hear about at least three people who they felt had enough circumstantial links to the case to cast doubt on Morin as the suspect. One was a friend of the Jessup family who made strange comments to Janet Jessup after Christine's body was found. The second was a teenage boy who worked at the Queensville Cemetery behind Christine's house and was known to carry a knife and had a history of sexual problems. And the third suspect was a young man who drove through Queensville the day Christine disappeared and then mysteriously washed out his company van the next day with a high-pressure hose and detergent. The young man was also known to carry a knife and had spent time at a foster home near where Christine's body was found. But the judge of the second trial said there wasn't a strong enough connection between the suspects and the killing, so the information was not allowed to be admitted. Author Kirk Macon says this was a major loss for the defense. You know, at many a murder trial, uh, part of the defense or a major pillar of the defense is there's someone else who not only could have done it, he had the motive, he had the opportunity, and look, here's evidence. And all they're trying to do is raise a reasonable doubt in the mind of the judge or jury, and an alternate suspect can do it. Testimony at the second trial finally started in November 1991. It had been seven years now since Christine's murder, and the tragedy continued to take its toll on the Jessup family. Bob and Janet Jessup were now separated, and Bob had moved in with his girlfriend. Ken had some minor troubles with the law and had done a stint at a psychiatric facility. The Jessups were never able to sell their house in Queensville next door to the Morin family, so Janet was still living there until just before the second trial began. That's when the bank foreclosed on the house and Janet was forced to move out. The jury of the second trial heard a lot of the same evidence as the first trial, including the hair and fiber evidence and the alleged jailhouse confession Morin made to Robert May and Mr. X. But this time around, there was also quite a bit of new information for the jury to consider. For example, a police officer who did not testify at the first trial was called to the stand. Constable David Robertson spoke about his involvement in Christine's search, and he told the jury that he took his German Shepherd rider to the Morin property several hours after her disappearance. At the time, York Regional Police, who were in charge of the search, didn't have a canine unit, so Robertson brought his own dog to the scene. He testified that after Ryder smelled one of Christine's sweaters to get her scent, the dog was led to Morin's car. At the driver's side, there was no reaction, but as they headed around to the passenger door, Ryder, the German Shepherd, began to react. His ears perked up, his sniffing was pronounced, and he threw his feet up on the passenger side window. The jury also heard about a mysterious scream that was apparently heard following Christine's funeral. 
Janet Jessup, along with a few people who attended a gathering at the Jessup home, said they heard a male voice outside crying, help me, help me, God help. They believe the scream came from the direction of the Morin home. The defense had a theory, though, that maybe it was Ken Jessup screaming that night, struggling with the guilt he felt about the sexual abuse of his little sister. In a shocking move, the judge allowed the defense to call Ken to the stand to question him about the abuse. But the judge warned defense lawyer Jack Pinkowski and his team that they were not allowed to paint Ken as a suspect. With his head bowed and his voice breaking, the jury and spectators listened in stunned silence as Ken revealed the abuse, which he says lasted from the time Christine was four until she was eight. The defense also asked Ken about the dreams he had about Christine not being properly at rest. The dreams had led Ken and his parents back to the body site where they found the missed bones. Remember, the defense wasn't allowed to paint Ken as a suspect, but the defense skirted around the issue by bringing attention to the fact that Ken had been involved in the abuse of his sister before her disappearance and had led his parents to find the missed bones of their daughter. Ken's testimony was a big blow for the prosecution, and the defense seemed to have at least created reasonable doubt in the Crown's case. In the end, the trial took eight months to complete, making it one of Canada's most expensive and longest-running murder trials. Jurors heard from more than 100 witnesses, and there was mountains of evidence to wade through before deciding Guy Paul Morin's fate. On July 30th, 1992, after eight days of deliberations, 11 jury members walked back into the courtroom just before 10 a.m., they rendered a verdict that left spectators in stunned silence. Guilty of first-degree murder. The verdict came with an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Justice James Donnelly allowed Moran to address the court, and he said with all the force he could muster, I'm not guilty of this crime. That's all I'm telling you today. It's a travesty of justice, what has happened today and throughout this whole ordeal, and I'm appealing this verdict. Paul's lawyer, Jack Pinkowski, was clearly shaken by the verdict. He remained seated at the defense table for several minutes with his head in his hands. Then he went over to the prisoner's box and put an arm on his client's back. Outside the courthouse, an ecstatic Jessup family met with the media, relieved their eight-year ordeal was finally over. The only consolation of the whole affair is that it's finally put to rest and maybe Christine can rest in peace. And finally, somebody has paid for Christine. The guilty one has paid for Christine's murder. We finally have a chance to move on with our lives and put this behind us. The Crown attorney, Leo McGuigan, greeted reporters with a broad grin and said he was always confident in the case they had. He said he believed the jury saw a whole bunch of little pieces that added up to guilt. He joked that he was going to celebrate with a beer. Author Kirk Macon says, for the most part, people were shocked that Morin was found guilty. The case against him was vastly weaker during the second trial than the first trial when he was found not guilty. Observers and the general public who watch these sort of things, I think it was pretty universal um, that it was an astonishing outcome. That the jury would not have found a reasonable doubt out of all this compromise and contradiction was astounding. But uh, it's case where the expected never happened and the unexpected constantly did. 
After his guilty verdict, Paul was taken to Kingston Penitentiary to begin serving his life sentence. But this wasn't the end of the road for Paul, who was now 32 years old. A grassroots movement of activists and journalists that didn't believe he was guilty had begun forming during the second trial, and they promised to keep fighting until his name was cleared. The movement was ignited by two things. First of all, Kirk Macon's book, Red Rum the Innocent, was published, which detailed the many flaws in the case against Paul. Then, a documentary on the CBC's Fifth Estate was released, which also raised questions about Paul's prosecution. Following the guilty verdict, the group, called the Justice for Guy Paul Morin Committee, promised to help Paul appeal his conviction and to fight for his release on bail while waiting for the appeal to take place. In addition to journalists and activists, the group consisted of lawyers, writers, mothers, police officers, and a man by the name of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Carter was once a top boxer in the United States until he was wrongfully convicted for a triple murder in 1966. Bob Dylan even wrote a song about him. Oh, here comes the story of Hurricane The man the authorities came to After 20 years behind bars, Carter was released when a citizens group made up mainly of Canadians helped prove his innocence. Following his release from jail, he moved to Canada and became a citizen. Now, Reuben Hurricane Carter was part of the group fighting for Guy Paul Morin's release. Another high-profile member of the group was Joyce Milgard. Her son, David Milgard, was wrongfully convicted in the rape and murder of a young woman in Saskatoon in 1969. He served over 20 years in jail before being released. The real killer was arrested several years later and convicted on DNA evidence. The Justice for Guy Paul Morin Committee held vigils in Toronto to protest the conviction and urged for his release on bail. But the chances he would be released from jail were slim. A person convicted of first-degree murder is not typically released on bail pending an appeal. In fact, it had only happened a couple of other times in Canada. But the judge at Morin's bail hearing said this case was not usual or typical. So in February 1993, after seven months behind bars, Morin was released on bail. A year later, Morin's new lawyer, James Lockyer, submitted a 1,900-page appeal of the case. The eight volumes filed in the Ontario Court of Appeal severely criticized the judge in the second trial, arguing that Justice James Donnelly was so biased in favor of the prosecution that his distorted and unbalanced jury instructions probably led to the guilty verdict. Lockyer also said the judge's refusal to allow evidence regarding other suspects hampered their case. Both sides were getting ready to dig in, preparing to fight tooth and nail at the appeal. Then, in the fall of 1994, there was a major development that changed everything. In the early 90s, DNA technology was still fairly new. In Canada, forensic DNA evidence had been used in criminal proceedings only since 1988. And the technology was antiquated and required a very large sample size. The technology was improving quickly, though. And in 1994, advances in the technology meant that scientists could possibly identify Christine's killer. You may remember that semen had been discovered in the little girl's underwear. Initially, the size and the quality of the sample weren't good enough to create a conclusive profile. 
Now, techniques had progressed to the point where a more conclusive result was likely. It was a huge turning point. The DNA sample was sent for analysis to a lab in Boston, and the Crown agreed if it wasn't a match to Guy Paul Morin, they would drop the case against him. It was a bit of a double-edged sword, though, for the defense. On one side, they were hopeful that Paul's name would finally be cleared. But on the other side, it was a bit of a gamble, because testing and examining the semen might require the lab to use so much of the sample that there wouldn't be enough left to do any further tests in the future if technology advanced even further. It was make-or-break time for Guy Paul Morin. On January 23, 1995, Paul's appeal was set to begin in a Toronto courtroom. At the time, I was working as a reporter at a Toronto radio station, and word had begun to circulate that something else was about to happen in court that day. My news director assigned me to cover the court hearing at the last minute. Up until then, I'd only followed the case in the news like everyone else. I had actually never covered any of the legal proceedings. But this is common for radio reporters to get thrown headfirst into a complicated story that requires a quick game of catch-up. I jogged over to the courthouse with another reporter who breathlessly explained to me what was going on. The court was about to hear if scientists in Boston were able to get a DNA profile from the sample on Christine's underwear. And if so, was it a match to Guy Paul Morin? When I arrived at Osgood Hall, which houses the highest courts in Ontario, the small courtroom where the hearing was set to take place was already packed to capacity. So many supporters had turned out for Paul that me and many other reporters had to wait out in the hallway. We paced around, unsure what was happening behind the thick wood-paneled doors to the courtroom. Then suddenly, there was a burst of applause and excitement from inside. The doors flung open and we were told Guy Paul Morin was innocent. His DNA did not match the DNA found on Christine's underwear. Inside the courtroom, Paul stood while Ontario Chief Justice Charles Dubbin acquitted him of first-degree murder. Crown lawyer Ken Campbell offered Paul a handshake and a public apology for prosecuting the wrong man. Paul simply said thank you to Chief Justice Dubbin. Because cameras and tape recorders are not allowed inside Canadian courtrooms, the media, along with Paul, his lawyers and other supporters, migrated to the front steps outside. A massive scrum of reporters swarmed Paul, who was grinning from ear to ear. I know. I didn't do it. I did not kill Christine Jessup. It's as simple as that. And finally, as I said, DNA has exonerated me 100%. Despite spending nearly a decade of his life under a cloud of suspicion, Paul was grateful for the support he received. I can't say I'm bitter, angry. Um, I managed to have wonderful supporters. Um, my family being number one, um, people across Canada writing me, uh, supporting me, my lawyers, wonderful team, wonderful, and I'm happy the way things now? have turned out. What are you going to do now, today? I think it's time to celebrate. <laughs> Christine's now 24-year-old brother, Ken, was also outside the courthouse and offered the Morin family an apology for everything they had been through. Now I have to sit back and realize and really let it sink in that he's not the one who sexually assaulted her. Um, that's what this evidence proves. He's now a free man. Say something I shouldn't. I hope he sues the ass off them. 
Two years later, in February 1997, Guy Paul Morin and his family were in fact compensated by the Ontario government. Paul received $700,000, and his parents, who had drained their savings and mortgaged their home to cover the cost of their son's legal bills, received $550,000. That same month, a public inquiry into Paul's legal case also began. One of the many shocking revelations at the inquiry revealed that the matching fibers found on Christine's clothing and in Paul's car were actually the result of contamination at the lab. It was discovered that the fibers came from a sweater worn by an analyst at the lab who vacuumed Paul's car. The inquiry heard that analyst Stephanie Nizhnik and her boss knew about the contamination during both trials but didn't mention it. Durham police detectives John Shepard and Bernie Fitzpatrick, who were instrumental in Morin's arrest, were called to testify at the inquiry as well. They said they truly believed at the time that he was guilty, but now they accept that Paul is innocent. Looking back at the case, author Kirk Macon says he assumes the detectives really believed they had caught the right guy. We often look at these things afterward and say, you know, the police were just trying to collar anyone, they take anyone they can get. It's not usually that simple. What usually happens is they believe they have the right person, and so they start to twist the evidence or, you know, put their thumbs on the scale uh, to make it appear more powerful than it is or to hide things which harm their case. And that's when you have, um, you know, you have cases that can go off the, off the rails. The final report from the inquiry was released in April 1998. And in a scathing conclusion, it accused prosecutor Leo McGuigan from the second trial and Durham police detectives Shepard and Fitzpatrick of having tunnel vision in the most staggering proportions. They tried to make the evidence fit their theory and didn't let the evidence point towards other suspects. The report contained a whopping 119 recommendations, including the creation of a national DNA data bank, which the federal government had up and running within two years. The day the report was released, Guy Paul Morin posed for pictures with his mom and Christine's mom, as well as her brother Ken. Kirk Macon says Christine's father, Bob Jessup, had grown apart from his ex-wife and son because he still believed that Guy Paul Morin killed his daughter. Following Morin's acquittal in 1995, the investigation was turned over from Durham Police to Toronto Police, who formed a special task force that completed a full reinvestigation. But no arrests were made. It seemed like the mystery of who killed little Christine Jessup would remain unsolved. Then, a break. If he, he were alive today, the Toronto Police Service would arrest Calvin Hoover for the murder of Christine Jessup. A stunning development in a decades-old cold case, the murder of nine-year-old Christine Jessup of Queensville, Ontario in 1984. Through DNA evidence, Toronto police have identified a former friend of the Jessup family as the killer. In October 2020, Toronto police used genetic genealogy to connect the DNA sample that cleared Guy Paul Morin to Calvin Hoover, who died by suicide in 2015. In 1984, Hoover and his wife Heather, along with their four children, were living in Toronto's East End. The husband and wife both worked at Eastern Independent Telecom, where they met Christine's father, Bob Jessup. 
Heather was a dispatcher, Calvin was a cable installer, and Bob was his boss. The two families became friendly, spending time together outside of work. Before his death, Calvin Hoover was never a suspect and wasn't one of the people police had questioned following Christine's murder. In fact, Hoover had helped search for the little girl and had attended her funeral. Christine's mom, Janet, said that Hoover was one of only a handful of people who knew her daughter would be at home by herself for a short time on the day she disappeared. The little girl's brother, Ken Jessup, said they were happily stunned that police had finally solved the crime, and they were grateful to investigators who never gave up on the case. Christine's father, Bob Jessup, who now has early stages of Alzheimer's, only vaguely remembers Calvin Hoover, but says it breaks his heart that the man they were looking for all these years was someone he knew. The organization that was created to help exonerate Guy Paul Morin was recently renamed Innocence Canada. The group is led by Paul's lawyer, James Lockyer, and since 1995, they have helped to exonerate 24 other innocent people. To learn more, you can visit their website at www.innocencecanada.com. Thanks once again to Kirk Macon for his help with this episode. Kirk's book about the Guy Paul Morin case is called Red Rum the Innocent. And once again, it was instrumental in helping to clear Paul's name. And this was a very special episode. This is our 100th episode. A very special thanks to you, the listener, for supporting History of the 90s. We could never have reached 100 episodes without you. Keep sending me your topics and suggestions. I always love hearing from you and try to answer every message that I receive. You can reach me on social media. I'm on Instagram at That 90s Podcast and Facebook at 1990s History. You can also send an email to 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 